Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. How is Doug Ford's energy roadmap taking us backwards instead of forwards? We're going to discuss that in the program today. Ontario's long-term care homes with poor care records are actually getting more money to expand. Dr. Amit Aria joins us to explain exactly why that's happening. And Hamilton City Councilors are already warning of huge tax increases for years to come. Do they realize the stress they're creating for taxpayers? All coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Something that we've been mentioning and, and trying to get some answers to over the last little while is energy. Our energy needs over the next little while about what's going to be happening, where are we going to generate this from. And of course, that discussion has been accelerated by the fact that uh, our government, the Ontario government, plus the federal government have made some large commitments to electronic vehicles and battery production, uh, which begs the question, what are we going to do? Uh, to produce energy for that. Well, what about the impact that's going to have on the grid? Well, yesterday, Ontario Energy Minister Todd Smith says his plan to meet provinces' growing electrical needs into the 2030s and beyond is going to include uh, securing new generation from things like green sources, wind, solar, hydroelectric, among other things. And, of course, we talked earlier this uh, program about uh, some of the nuclear projects that they're doing. Here's what the minister had to say. In addition to zero emissions nuclear power, which we announced last week, of course, the plan advances new clean generation from a range of sources. I've directed the ISO to start planning for the next competitive procurement of clean, non-emitting electricity generation, and that includes solar, hydroelectric, and wind. I had to shake my head when I heard that. I'll explain why in just a second. So what about these energy needs? What about the province's commitment? And what about their quote-unquote game plan to this? Uh, to, to discuss this, please to welcome back to the program Mike Schreiner. Mike is the leader of the Ontario Green Party and, of course, the MPP uh, for Guelph. Mike, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on today. Hey, Bill. Always a pleasure to join you on such an important topic. Well, it is, and I just want to set the groundwork here. You and I have had this discussion for, for many, many years now since you've been in office, and, and you and I agree to disagree about nuclear. I still think this is a fire for it. I know that you've got some problems with it, but that aside, my major concern when I heard the minister yesterday, Mike, is it kind of sounds like they've, they've written this policy on the back of an envelope. Here they are talking about their commitment to green energy. They canceled most of those programs when they first came to office. As a matter of fact, even on the nuclear front, I mean, they were ready to mothball a couple of the plants, and now all of a sudden, uh, that's their plan. What's going on here? Well, I mean, we have a provincial government that is just completely mismanaging the energy file, and now we're in a crunch, and what they're choosing to do is move forward with high cost, dirtier power by primarily ramping up gas plants in the short term and then building new nuclear long term. And Bill, you know, I'm not opposed. I've said this many times to rebuilding the Darlington nuclear plant and Bruce. We know nuclear mm -hmm. is going to be a part of Ontario's energy mix for decades into the future. But at a time when solar power is the cheapest power ever to be generated, according to the International Energy Agency, which historically has been very pro-oil uh, and gas, uh, and why Ontario would choose high-cost, dirtier path when we could be like the rest of the world and choose a low-cost, cleaner path, which we can deploy much faster by focusing in on wind, solar, and water power but especially solar power, which has dropped dramatically in price. 
the uh, question was raised to the uh, minister yesterday about, you know, aren't these the projects you guys canceled at the time? And you, you well remember those days, Mike. And, and, uh, oh, yeah. his, his, his response was, well, we had too much energy in those days. So we had to, we didn't need that. We don't, that's like saying we have too much oxygen, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, it just shows you how the government's mismanaged the energy file. I mean, to cancel 750 renewable energy projects, costing the taxpayers $231 million. And now we're scrammed. Now the government is scrambling uh, to make up for that energy just shows you how they've mismanaged it. But the other thing they did that doesn't get talked about enough is they canceled most of the energy efficiency and conservation programs, which those programs help people save money by saving energy. And when we talk about the lowest cost solution, it's actually energy efficiency and conservation. It's the electricity that you don't need because you're using it more efficiently and effectively. Uh, and the government canceled all those programs as well. So the Ontario Greens have been saying, hey, let's choose the lowest cost, cleanest path forward. That starts with energy efficiency and conservation to help businesses and homeowners save money by saving electricity. And then when we need new generation, and we absolutely are going to need new generation as we electrify our transportation systems, as we move to electrifying home heating, as we look to ramp up things like battery plants to electrify our transportation systems, let's choose the lowest, cleanest, and fastest way that we can deploy uh, generation. And that is solar. That's why over $500 billion were invested in wind and solar last year alone by global investors because it's the cheapest solution. That's why solar grew by 24% in the EU last year. And wind and solar now produce more electricity in Europe than gas and coal. Why? Because it's the cheapest source of generation. Why Ontario is literally canceling contracts for the cheapest sources of electricity generation makes absolutely no sense to me. There's another thing here that I wanted to get your, your opinion on, if I could, Mike, now that we've got you here today, uh, and that's time frame. Um, we know that the government's made these commitments to, to EVs uh, and the, uh, to battery production, of course, and, and that, that's laudable that they seem to finally be, have moved into the 21st century. Uh, but the concern here is timing. I mean, even for what they want to do here, is going to take years and years. There's a process, and I know these guys have a track record of doing an end run around process, uh, but we're talking about things, for instance, nuclear energy. Um, there's a huge, huge environmental assessment that has to be done on these and other projects as well. If, if the, the two timeframes and the two schedules here don't seem to jive, what they want us to do with EVs uh, sounds like we're going to put an awful lot more pressure on our, our, our power system before these guys are up and running on a lot of these projects that they're promising. I mean, there's no shovels on the ground for any of this stuff yet, and that's going to take time. Are you concerned about that, 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 that we may be putting ourselves in a precarious situation where maybe we may be looking at brown oats or, God forbid, blackouts again? Yeah, well, I'm deeply concerned about that. And, you know, there was a report written earlier this year by a, an independent agency showing that uh, Ontario is facing the biggest energy crunch of pretty much any jurisdiction in North America. So this is a real concern. It's been independently verified, which is exactly why we need to be looking at what is the lowest cost, cleanest, most rapid source of electricity generation we can deploy that by far is solar. That's why Europe increased solar production by 24% last year alone, because it's the cheapest source 
it's clean, and it can be deployed quickly. Why we're not doing that in Ontario makes absolutely no sense to me. I mean, we need to increase generation, and we want to do it using the cheapest source of generation. That's solar. I don't understand why the government's not doing that. And then on top of that, I mean, the government is starting to bring back some of the energy efficiency and conservation programs, but we could significantly ramp that up because that's the easiest way to help people and businesses save money by saving energy and taking stress off of the grid. And and this is the, the thing I think that concerns an awful lot of people. We always seem to go with flavor of the month. Okay, we're going to direct uh, all our, our energies, excuse the bad pun here, uh, towards this source. It's going to be nuclear. It's going to be this. Or it's going to be that. Uh, countries that seem to be handling this and, and managing the, 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 the pending uh, pressure that's going to be on here, Mike, uh, they, they diversify. I mean, uh, obviously, we want green projects, and apparently, we're told that's one of the things the premiers are going to be talking about in Manitoba today. And I assume Premier Ford is going to be in on that conversation. Uh, but if you just say, okay, we're all going to do this, I mean, you know, the a previous Liberal government was fascinated and some would say obsessed with gas fired plants, and that, that was wrong for a whole lot of reasons. Uh, is, is any indication at all that we understand that there's going to have to be almost a smorgasbord here of a little bit of this, a little bit of that uh, to make this thing work going down the road? Well, it doesn't seem to be by the current government. I mean, they're really doubling down on fossil gas plants, which is going to increase climate pollution by three to 400% and make our, la- our grid less clean and less competitive. And now that looks like they're going to, uh, on top of that, double down on gas and nuclear the Ontario Greens, we're saying we need a diverse mix. I mean, Bill, think of your investment portfolio. Everyone says, you know what, have a diverse mix of investments because you want to hedge your bets in case one does well and one doesn't. But that's the safest, smartest, most sensible path forward. And and I believe that should be the case for our electricity system. And that's what most of the experts say. And so that's exactly why, you know, we're not opposed to rebuilding Darlington and Bruce. We know nuclear power is going to be, you know, a big part of Ontario's energy mix moving forward. But we need to balance that with wind, solar, hydro, and storage, uh, which are the cheapest forms of electricity generation now. So let's move forward with the low-cost solutions. And then, of course, we can use energy much more efficiently and effectively through energy efficiency and conservation programs. That's the kind of diverse mix that will be the lowest cost path forward the fastest way to deploy, uh, and and the one that's the cleanest when it comes to addressing the climate crisis, but also when it comes to making our economy competitive. A lot of these global investments that we've been attracting, especially around EV plants, the investors have said one of the reasons they're looking at Ontario is not only because of the subsidy support that the federal and provincial government's been putting in, but also because Ontario has a pretty clean grid right now. But unfortunately, under the Ford government, that grid is getting dirtier and we're going to lose that competitive advantage. Well, uh, the, we're looking for a game plan here. And, and you know, like I say, the minister's comments the other day, I think, caught an awful lot of people off guard because uh, they're, they're saying one thing. And, and as you say, seemingly subsidizing something else altogether different. And uh, I don't know. I mean, if they had not canceled those, I know what it could have should is, is one of the great things in politics. But if they had not canceled those projects when they first came to office, you wonder how far down the road we would have been and how, how much tension we could have relieved from the, the pressure on the grid right now. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're right. Woulda, coulda, shoulda. Hindsight's twenty twenty. I mean, I warned the government of this uh, back when they made when they canceled those contracts. But l- let's look forward. And because I think that's what the people of Ontario want. 
And my theory is, is the government's hostility in canceling those contracts are clouding their judgment moving forward. When you have organizations like the International Energy Association, historically pro uh, oil and gas, saying solar energy is the cheapest source of electricity generation ever now, not just in our current context, but ever. That's where global investment is going, but we have a government that's actively hostile to it. And so I think their judgment, unfortunately, is being clouded by the fact that they came into office so ideologically opposed to renewables, canceled those renewable energy projects, and it's now clouding their judgment moving forward when it comes to choosing the lowest cost source of generation. Well, and there's a different game plan here, isn't there? I know we're just about out of time, but you know the the, the ones who were dismissive of that, including this government, about things like solar and, and wind, simply said, "Well, if it's uh, if it's not sunny, if it's not windy, uh, then you know it, this, it's a waste of time and energy." Uh, we have energy storage uh, now. The, the technology's improved significantly over the last number of years, and some really enterprising uh, uh, projects that are ongoing right now. So uh, we're better at it now, and I think better able to reassess what's going to be happening and what we can use. Oh, absolutely, Bill. And you know what? To you know, I don't want to completely always be, you know, critical of government. One of the things the government has done is has started to make investment in cost-effective energy storage, and and I think that's a good move by this government. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we, we need to ramp that up quicker, uh, given the energy crunch we're facing, and also to take advantage of low-cost renewables. But that's exactly why you have a mix. That's why the Ontario Greens have been saying. You know what? Nuclear is going to be part of our mix. Hydro is going to be a big part of our mix. I mean, hydro has been a huge source of clean, renewable uh, power in Ontario for over a century now. Wind and solar is going to be an important part of that mix. Energy efficiency and conservation. And of course, storage, because, yeah, you're right. The wind doesn't always blow. The sun doesn't always shine. But I will say that, you know, our peak demand um, tends to be on hot, sunny days in the summer. Well, you know what, there's a lot of solar power being generated on those sunny days that could really help us reduce cost and reduce pollution in our electricity system if we had a government that was willing to say, you know what, let's move past the decision we made five years ago and let's embrace low-cost renewable energy, especially solar. Well, uh, even though the uh, the legislature is dark for the next couple of months, uh, there's no such thing as a day off for our politicians. Mike, I appreciate you taking the time for us today. Hey, Bill, anytime. This is such an important conversation, so thank you. Absolutely. Take care. Mike Schreiner, of course, is the leader of the Ontario Green Party and the MPP for uh, Guelph. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Health Standards Organization developed new national standards to boost quality of life and prevent the spread of infection after the COVID-19 pandemic cast a harsh spotlight on conditions in long-term care homes across the country. Provinces and territories requested a report from the Institute to figure out how far they are from meeting the new standards. The Institute's report found that only 25 of the 117 criteria laid out in the national standards could be found in the policies of all provinces and territories. Laura Osmond, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. And with that report, thank you, Laura. Uh, we've got some concerns here in Ontario. This is the Bill Kelly Show. Glad you're with us here on CFPL London and CHML Hamilton. Uh, and as Laura mentioned in her report, a number of these facilities uh, have not met the standard. And, and I know these are federal standards, but, you know, somebody's got to put some guardrails and some oversight, and that's what they've done. And the province said, okay, we can, we can play by those rules. Many of them aren't. And the concern we've got now is that the Ontario government is, is 
saying that they're going to start committing a lot more money to these facilities. Uh, many of them that are getting Ontario money, your money and mine, are on these these facilities that are not performing well, not doing a good enough job looking after our frail and elderly. So what kind of criteria is going on and what kind of a message does this send? So I bring this uh, to the attention of our next guest. Uh, he is uh, Dr. Ahmed Aria, who is a lecturer of uh, Division of Palliative Care in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. He's also an associate clinical professor uh, in the Division of Palliative Care, Faculty of Health Sciences at McMaster University in Hamilton. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on, Doctor. Thank you so much for the time today. Yeah, thanks so much, Bill. Uh, we've been, it's been a while since you and I have talked and we've been watching some of these developments. I mentioned just before you joined us about, you know, there's been good, bad and ugly with some of the provincial policies here. The idea of moving people out of hospitals and sticking them into facilities 20, 30 kilometers away. Uh, not such a good idea, but that's part of their plan, apparently. Then they said, okay, we're going to put more beds in. And then they said, we're going to offer expansion dollars. Uh, but they seem to be picking the people that are doing some of the, the worst care job of care around here. Is there is there a set of criteria and is there uh, boxes that they need to check before they qualify for this? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think it's about taxpayer accountability, Bill. And it's also about, of course, uh, you know, accountability to the frontline staff and, you know, the elders and families who need long-term care very desperately. And here in Ontario, we actually know that uh, long-term care home chains, nursing home chains who had some of the highest COVID-19 death rates have reaped or are going to reap uh, major financial rewards under the province's plan where they are committing to a 6.4 billion dollar expansion of the province's long-term care system um, you know they're going to expand long-term care beds and that's a good thing because our population is aging and we desperately need long-term care beds and we desperately need more elder care services at large but unfortunately uh, the you know the majority of that money is going to go towards the for-profit sector and once again you know the for-profit long-term care homes which you know failed miserably during the pandemic so it doesn't make sense that we should be rewarding you know the worst operators at this time well and i know that we're going to get into private versus public and, and the majority of, of uh healthcare facilities at least for long-term care anyway in this province anyway are are, are private and that's simply because right. it costs an awful money to do this but and I'm not picking on, on on private ownership by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I'd love to be able to come on and say, hey, guess what? You get the best possible care at the publicly owned one. Uh, but that's not the case. Uh, and the independent surveys have been done on this. And and we've already talked about some of the details behind the details here that a lot of the, the boards of directors, et cetera, in some of these facilities are, are conservative donors or former conservative MPPs or premiers, as the case might be. Right. Uh, which begs the question, is that what's the driving force behind who gets the money and who doesn't? I, I'd like to think not. Well, I don't know, because there's a lack of transparency and somehow, you know, in, in terms of how these deals are done and how this... Um, you know, like how these decisions are made, uh, you know, just to elaborate on what you were saying, uh, firstly, um, you know, I, I will add that, you know, there's two aspects in terms of how we think about long term care, and in fact, healthcare. But of course, we're here today to talk about long term care. One is the financing of the care, who's paying for the care, and actually, all long term care homes in Ontario and across the country are publicly financed, meaning it is our public taxpayer dollars yeah. that are going into all long term care homes. The question is, who is delivering the care? So it can either be, for example, a municipality like the like you know the city of Toronto, for example, um, or the city of Hamilton. So they own long-term care homes. So those are publicly funded 
publicly delivered. There are private not-for-profit corporations that also do this work and do an excellent job and provide a lot of the culturally specific care. And once again, in these two models where care is delivered by a municipality or a not-for-profit corporation, um, all of our taxpayer dollars are going towards direct care or they're going towards upkeep of the long-term care home. There is no investors, there's no profit taking or anything like that. But the third model, which is the problem, are the ones which are publicly funded and delivered by a for-profit corporation. And in some cases, chains that are even traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange, for example, where really their incentive is to maximize dividends to shareholders. And that's really the problem. And to add to, of course, what's been reported in the media during COVID-19 and before, there's actually lots of, there's, you know, actually decades of data and evidence and peer-reviewed you know, peer-reviewed research, what I can get into if you want, but it really shows that the quality of care is significantly worse in for-profit long-term care homes. So, of course, we need to just, I mean, we don't need to just build more beds, but we need to make sure that people are getting good quality care in those beds. Uh, these, uh, as the Premier so aptly, I think, uh, labeled them, are our healthcare heroes, the ones that look after the people that are in the most dire circumstances, especially uh, for a variety of health reasons. Uh, so the the provinces you and I have talked about in the past have come up with initiatives. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna hire a lot more of them. We're gonna train them. We're gonna pay for some of that training, and we're gonna get these these staff levels up. I'm told uh, anecdotally, I haven't done the scientific studies on this certainly, Doctor, uh, that there are still huge staff shortages here. That yeah, they people come in there and leave. They just said, you know what, not not happening. I don't need this. Uh, that there's the patient to uh, to to care give a ratio is still way too high. Uh, the workload is difficult. Uh, the working conditions are still pretty crappy in some of these facilities and they're leaving. Uh, what are you hearing? Oh, absolutely. As someone who works on the front lines still of our long-term care facilities here in Ontario, in, in you know, in the GTA area, that's something I very sadly see on a regular basis. There's, uh, you know, just as you outlined, Bill, there's a lot of turnover uh, of staff, uh, you know, a lot of moral distress because many of these staff members, in fact, all of these staff members are extremely caring, go out of their way to look after residents. But the problem is there's too few staff and too many residents who have very acute and complex needs. So they simply don't have the time to actually provide the care that is required. And, um, you know, like just to give you a bit of an example, um, what I see regularly in, in long-term care facilities is that there's one nurse who's present to look after about maybe a range of 25 to 32 residents in the day. And at night that drops down to one nurse looking after maybe 60 residents. Right. So we can sort of imagine what type of care people would get. Uh, I, I regularly see very sad stories where, unfortunately, because there's not enough PSWs, uh, people who maybe could mobilize a bit, get up to the bathroom in the middle of the night are not receiving, you know, you know, are not receiving that assistance and instead have to wear an incontinence brief. And of course, that's elder neglect, that's systemic elder neglect. And, you know, we need to change that. We need to change that as soon as we can. And and a lot of that comes down to wages and benefits. I mean, let's face it, we, we're all in a financial crunch these days. Uh, since you and I talked during the worst days of, of the, the pandemic and, and the stuff that was going on in LTCs then, uh, you know, it's it's financially more difficult for you and I and everybody, for instance, to get by because of inflation, uh, higher rates, higher infra- interest rates, things of this nature. Uh, those workers are impacted by that as well. And if they're already underpaid, uh, what, what pressure are they under right now to go and find something or to maybe go find a second job to try to augment their income, which they're not supposed to be able to, or shouldn't be able to do, uh, shouldn't have to be doing either. But uh, so many of them are trying that. 
Yeah, I mean, you bring up a great point, and working conditions are very, very important. As Dr. Pat Armstrong, who's perhaps Canada's you know, leading long-term care uh, researcher, has said, the conditions of work determine the conditions of care. There's really no care without staff, and we know that, uh, of course, and this is something I regularly see, that many staff, uh, unfortunately, um, even just working at one long-term care home on a part-time basis, are unable to sort of, you know, actually, you know, earn a living. So they often have to cobble together many casual and part-time jobs because the full-time jobs are not available. Um, We know that uh, we were speaking about for-profit long-term care and Part of the way that for-profit long-term care homes earn profits is by paying their staff lower wages and charging higher fees to residents who have private rooms. And, you know, what happens is that, of course, this leads to the turnover directly. And there's, once again, data and evidence, uh, Canadian studies would show that uh, staff working in for-profit ownership had higher, I mean, you know, basically those long-term care homes have higher staff uh, turnover, higher rates of injury for staff. And, of course, You know, when we have uh, poor staffing levels, uh, more burnout in the staff, this directly correlates to, you know, harm for the residents. And this directly correlates with uh, bad care. Once again, there is no care without proper staff. And the working conditions for staff in long-term care homes are the conditions of care for the residents. And and I just want to reiterate something because we've talked about this, you and I, for, well, it has been years now. Uh, I'm not right. insinuating that the Premier or Minister Calandria or anybody else in government is is consciously saying, okay, we're going to put these elderly people in, in a bad way. Uh, I, I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is there's a set of standards that have been established by the federal government. Please just enforce the standards across all, private and public, uh, so that everybody has the same opportunity for the best possible care. There seems to be a double standard here and two sets of rules here between private and public here in this province. And my opinion, just on the conversations you and I have had over the years, doctor, that's got to change. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, to be very fair to the current government here in Ontario, the Ford government, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of these problems, Bill, are very, are longstanding. I mean, we can really speak about the, you know, the previous government. And also, I mean, you know, they really require collaboration between different levels of government. So, you know, it starts at the federal government where they have to properly fund um, and appropriately fund elder care in this country, which I can tell you, you know, if we compare to other um, sort of OECD countries, other high income countries, especially the Nordic countries, Denmark, Sweden, um, you know, the Netherlands, you know, some of these countries in Europe, they actually fund seniors care, elder care a lot better than, you know, than we do. So the overall funding is is much, much stronger. And then one of the other problems is that, you know, we have misses, you know, we have a significant missing piece of the puzzle where, of course, here we're seeing in Ontario, they are, you know, investing a significant amount in long-term care, but home care, actually, which is not only the most cost-effective, you know, it's not only the most cost-effective option, but also the preference of, of seniors their caregivers and their families is grossly underfunded here. So we need to change our funding model where at the very least we pay equal attention to home care as well to ensure that people can live independently for as long as they can, you know, to ensure that people maybe necessarily, you know, don't necessarily have to go to long-term care as the only option to actually reduce overcrowding in our hospitals. So many benefits to, um, you know, funding home care more. And then as we've talked about on today's show, Bill, um, it's also very important that when we are building more long-term care spaces, which is needed, we make sure that, you know, as many as possible are non-profit, which means that all of our taxpayer dollars will be going towards frontline care, will be going towards these publicly funded facilities and not towards shareholders or investors, which absolutely doesn't make any sense. 
Uh, always a pleasure to have you on the program, Doctor. Always insightful. Thank you so much for this. This is a part of an ongoing conversation. Have a great day, and we'll talk again soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Bill. Take care, Dr. Amit Arya, who has uh, been a strong voice and a strong advocate for better long-term care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. My colleague and my good friend, Scott Radley, uh, who also, of course, hosts the Scott Radley Show on CHML every evening, uh, writes for the Hamilton Spectator. I uh, was talking to a number of city councilors about, uh, well, first of all, the high tax increase that municipalities are having to deal with these days. In Hamilton, it was just under 6% this year. Many of the councillors are suggesting that next year, because of budget pressures, it could go as high as 10 or 11%. That's, I know, unfathomable, but that seems to be the reality. A lot of them are very concerned about it, including uh, Ward 5 City Councillor Matt Francis said this. Between provincial downloading with development charges, lingering inflationary pressures, that alone is going to start us off in the 5% range. Pressures with the encampment situation, which clearly is a big problem in this city, and the wanting to build more affordable housing, that's going to add a lot. And then that's not even including any of the council refer items. So some of the items that councillors have that they, they want to see done in, in the city, that's going to be before us, including fare-free transit, which is $47 million. That's 5% hit to the levy. Hmm. Um, so if you add all that up right there alone with without even diving in it too deep, that's already 10%. Uh, Matt Francis from Ward 5 in Hamilton. Now, now, this is not unique to Hamilton. We already know that Toronto is under a huge financial pressure right now, and they've been begging, and I mean begging, uh, the federal and provincial governments for financial assistance, and, and Hamilton, London, everybody's in the same boat. Uh, and I get the fact about downloading being a factor here. That, that's something that we've had to deal with for many, many years uh, here in the province of Ontario. Uh, but our City councilors still responsible to a certain extent, to a great extent, about just how high that tax bill is. Now, is this the new normal now that we're going to be looking at double-digit tax increases on your municipal taxes every year? I want to bring John Best in the conversation. John is the publisher of the Bay Observer, and he's been following provincial and, and municipal tax uh, programs and, of course, the, the way that municipalities deal with them for a long, long time now. John, thanks for jumping in today. Really appreciate the time. Good to be with you, Bill. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that. And, and uh, there's a couple of political realities here. First of all, uh, one of the easiest things to do is to point fingers at others and say, well, it's not my fault. They, that happens a lot in politics. We know that. And I'm not, uh, as I mentioned in my commentary this morning at CHML, I'm not dismissive of the, the provincial downloading and, and what they're doing here and the impact it's having. Uh, but can council just kind of sit back and say, well, it's not our fault. The numbers are going up, uh, but we're still going to just do what we want to do here and, and, you know, uh, we'll just put up with this and we'll just blame somebody else for this. There's, there's still, I think, the overwhelming majority of responsibility for property taxes is still with the municipality, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, yes, we do have these external pressures, but, uh, uh, you know, I hate to use the analogy of, of business because I know government can't run like a business, but at some point you have to look at uh, your cost structure and uh, th there's none of that going on at, at City Hall. It's all about, uh, okay, we've added this task, so let's add staff. Uh, this, this new council went through a budget process uh, last spring where they, uh, there was no objection. I didn't see a hand up when, when staff added over 100 positions to what is already an 8,000-person workforce. And at the end of the day, the biggest cost we face in Hamilton is not foregone uh, development fees from affordable housing. 
the biggest cost we face is our payroll. We've got we've got well over eight thousand people, and you never hear a peep out of anybody about it. Is there a way of re-engineering uh, government to a degree where we can control some of these staff increases? It's all about incremental add-on. Um, you know, and and I'm not sure, frankly, in the municipal sector, if that skill set even exists, if there even is a, you know, a city manager type of person out there or a group of uh, people that that specialize in lowering costs at the municipal level. But I, I certainly know from from our days, uh, from my days running a, a fairly large department that when we were faced with um, uh, revenue challenges, uh, you had to attack your number one cost. There's no point in attacking, uh, you know, how many pencils you're ordering and things like that. You have to go at the biggest cost on your sheet. And in almost every organization, that is payroll. And so well, there's none of that. And uh, I think that's part of the problem. But also, but John, you know, go while ahead, go everybody's ahead. wringing their hands, and, and by the way, this 10%, what that could be, is the, the old dance that we used to see, Bill, where we start yeah. out with an ugly number. What they may be trying to do is normalize 6% uh, over the next uh, four, three or four years, which would mean that at the end of this term of council, they would have increased property taxes by 25%. So I, I'm not sure if the 10% is a real number, but it, it will be real if there isn't some significant focus on cost cutting. And, and I don't hear anybody talking about that right now. Well, as they've done in past years, and I was really troubled to see them do it this past budget cycle, uh, they add costs, as, as you mentioned, adding staff, uh, paying huge amounts of money to consultants uh, for, for work that could be done in, uh, with, with the existing staff. Uh, and and it's uh, one of the minute little areas of this, John, and I know it's a kind of a, a pet peeve for me, but they voted uh, to increase their office budgets. This is, and I know that, look at that alone did not put them over the top and say, oh my God, you know, it's all because of those office budgets. But you, there's a symbolic area to say, you know what, we got to suck it up here. And they didn't seem to have that mindset at all. They were adding cost to this with, this is the, this 5.8 or whatever it ended up being uh, for tax. And that, that's one of the highest ones in the last 20, 25 years in the city. And it's the worst bloody possible time for this to be having, uh, given all the other pressures that the people in the city are under right now. You know, when we look at, at median income and, and things like this, property taxes increasing like this, so basically are going to put an awful lot more people in a position where they simply can't afford to pay them. And what happens then? Well, and, and just speaking of uh, office budget increases, Cameron Kretsch was, uh, led the charge on that thing. And after four attempts, uh, he finally got something through. But in, in the last debate where it was being discussed, he said, well, I promised that I would hold four town halls uh, a year uh, throughout my uh, my ward. You could almost argue that that staff increase is, is almost like a re-election fund. So, yeah, there's, you know, they're worrying about, well, maybe they're not worrying about it. I heard Matt Francis worrying about it, and, I, and a couple of others were quoted in... Just let me jump in there, John, on that on that point that I ran for the, the Councillor Francis Club. He says he, he talked about things like, you know, the tent encampments and stuff like that and the downloading uh, because of development charges. Okay, check those boxes. And then he said on top of that are all the other councillors' uh, individual priorities. No, this is the year where you say no. That can wait. 
And they're not doing that. They want to add that on on top of all the other pressures that they're feeling right now. Where is the restraint to say, do we really need to, to do that, that street work? Do we really need to put that on here? Can it wait a year? The answer most of the time is going to be, yes, it can. Well, and most of those, the, the euphemism is counselor referred items. Very little of that is fixing streets. It's, it's uh, more along the lines of ideological social stuff. So it's, it's not even infrastructure. I mean, they've all got a million dollars to spend uh, in a discretionary area. And some of them are using the money, I think, in the right way. But, uh, you know, so, Bill, we got all this going on. We got this 10% thing hanging over our heads. And then in the meantime, in today's paper, we're talking about the fact that staff just released a report that said, you know, you asked us last year to see what properties might be available for affordable housing. And and guess what? They, they, they have come up with none. And the reason they've come up with none is partly because there are none. And uh, I think staff were given an almost impossible task. Uh, this this council and the previous ones were completely sucked in uh, by this idea that somehow one of the senior governments was going to insist on affordable housing. And that was Catherine McKenna that created that, that expectation. So we lost two or three years doing absolutely nothing about it, not realizing that the only impetus for any of this affordable housing was going to have to come from the city. And uh, it, we were really deceived on that point. That, that was an unfortunate thing. And then today, you, staff are saying, well, we, yes, we do have a lot of municipal parking lots along uh, Main Street and King Street. And, and we do, you know, east of the Delta Bill. And there, there's some nice little municipal parking lots all along that route. But they can't use them because uh, Metrolinks might need them for hydro transformers. So my thought is, are we at a point where we're going to build this thing and, and the, the detail of design is, is so loose that we still don't know things like where uh, power infrastructure is going to have to exist? Um, there, there's just a, a, a real mess here, Bill, of uh, people pointing fingers in opposite directions. Nobody's in charge. Uh, nobody's really got a handle on this housing issue. And, and you heard Carl Andrus uh, in, in the article today saying, you know, when staff made that presentation, which essentially said we haven't made any progress on the affordable housing issue, he said he expected a lot more. And you got to remember that he was involved uh, in the 2018 election. He was part of Yes LRT, uh, believing, as many did at that time, that somehow LRT was going to solve a whole raft of social problems. And all it's really done is displaced hundreds of people and threatens to make housing pretty much unaffordable uh, all along the route. So, you know, we, we really have some deep-seated problems here that we need to get a handle on quickly. Well, and there's got to be more transparency. And I know that's the clarion call almost every year on council, but there's stuff going on here. And you, you talked about LRT. Uh, I'm hearing from some of my sources uh, that this thing is nowhere near close to, to you know, getting shovels in the ground, uh, that there are going to be huge cost overruns. The province apparently is concerned about that. Metrolinx is even concerned about that. Uh, and, you know, this may or may not be completed to the extent that they think it's going to be. Uh, there may still have to be some, some municipal money into that. Really? How much is that going to be? And, and then there's the cloud about what's going on with this downtown redevelopment. And, and, <laughs> 
you know, how much is this going to cost? I mean, I'm here, the, the properties are being traded, uh, that the city has made uh, a financial commitment. We don't know how much. We don't know if that's going to be land, money, whatever the case might be. Uh, although I do know that a number of the councilors said, oh, it's not going to cost the taxpayers one red cent. Uh, I, I, that's not the impression I'm getting right now. So, you know, just what, what are they holding back on and what kind of an impact is that going to have on and uh, the, the municipal taxpayers here? That's the problem. And as you have been writing about for years and I've been talking about for years, uh, we already know that property taxes are the most regressive form of taxation because it's not based on your ability to pay. It's based on, on, on where you live. Um, and you know, you may have bought that house back in the days when you were making $75,000 a year. Now you're retired living on a pension uh, and your taxes are going up by 6% this year. Your salary isn't, your income isn't going up this way. There's gotta be, I think, more consideration for the impact this is having on ratepayers. Well, I, I think we, if we really do get 10% tax increases and, and I think Scott's article suggested that that was going it wasn't just going to be next year. It was going to be right yeah. through the term. Uh, we're going to have a tax revolt of some kind, and we're going to have uh, people that just can't pay their taxes. Uh, it's going to put the city in an awful position because they can't foreclose on on a large number of homes. Uh, the system doesn't isn't built to handle that kind of a, a deficit. Um, th there really has to be some very very serious thought about priorities. They just went through a priority uh, exercise with city council and. And didn't even talk about the number one priority, which is LRT. That that that's that priority completely sucks the oxygen out of every other priority. It wasn't even on the sheet. So, uh, you know, we, we're really dealing with uh, an unrealistic uh, council right now. They're just not. Uh, they they're really just stumbling around at this point. Let me just. This is the thing, that we, and again, I'll go back to Councillor Francis. I'm not going to hold him up here, but I mean, just his comments, and you know, those are anecdotal comments about what he hears and what he sees around City Hall. Uh, he talked about one of uh, uh, the other priorities that some of his colleagues are pushing for, and that's essentially for, for free transit, for zero fares for transit. Uh, <laughs> Listen, uh, how naive can you be, John? I mean, the first thing the province is going to say is, look, at, we already gave you a billion dollars to get this LRT thing done. And then you turn around and you cancel a revenue source from your transit. And then you get your hand out for more money from us. You know, Go get your act together. That's the answer they're going to get from both levels of government here. Well, and we have this annoying habit of sending uh, non-government people to both Queens Park and, uh, and Ottawa. And, and yet we expect to get special treatment. It's uh, completely unrealistic. Anybody that, that would have the nerve to stand up in council and talk about free transit should be defeated at the next election. They're just, they, they just don't understand what their job really entails. Or the current circumstance. You know, there may be a day somewhere down in this uh, utopian vision that they have uh, that maybe the city would be in a financial position to be able to offer something like that. But realistically, John, we're nowhere near that these days. As a matter of fact, we're worse off than we were three years ago. Our transit ridership is back to, uh, we, we've recovered about half of what we lost during the pandemic. So we're uh, well below, we're seven or eight million rides below where we were in 2019. And that wasn't a particularly great year. 
Well, here's the reality. Uh, you have to manage your expectations. Uh, you have a budget in your household. I have a budget in, in our household. Uh, and when you hit tough financial times, you have to make tough decisions about maybe we don't go on a vacation this year. Maybe we can't buy that. Maybe we're just going to have to pull back on on that project that we wanted to do in the basement. Uh, you know, in other words, you have to gear your, your expectations and your financial commitments uh, to the fiscal realities. And I just don't see these guys doing that. Not yet anyway, Bill, but uh, one thing for sure, the public is watching closely. Every one of these councillors uh, will, uh, you know, Tom Jackson has already said it in council, but they're all hearing it. Um, people have had their tax bill and uh, they are upset about it. And it's only going to get worse if uh, this uh, organization doesn't get real. We'll see just what the response is going to be. Matt is hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. We still have to remember that classic line. John, thanks yeah. as always. Great talking with you again today. Thanks, Bill. John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.